Welcome to the Public Morality. The San Francisco Chronicle recently published a piece on Senator Dianne Feinstein in which her colleagues expressed concern that she is now, quote, mentally unfit to serve, unquote, and that her staff is doing much of the work. Various individuals, including four U.S. senators and three former staffers, told the Chronicle that her memory is rapidly deteriorating and she can no longer fulfill her job duties as a result of her alleged cognitive decline. She is currently serving her term through the end of 2024. This unfortunate disclosure about Senator Feinstein has once again raised calls to enact term limits for members of Congress. But are term limits an overly simplistic solution to a more complex problem, or as H.L. Mencken stated, for every complex problem, there is an answer that's clear, simple, and wrong. Joining me to discuss term limits is Professor Casey Burgett. Professor Burgett is Legislative Affairs Program Director and Assistant Professor at George Washington University. Professor Casey Burgett, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Uh, what is the problem, in your view, that term limits seeks to address? That everyone hates politics. And so if you hate that, then the, the people that are in office right now, it only makes sense, at least logically, that if we hate everything about what they're doing or more often what they're not doing, then let's get new people in there. In there. And there's, a, there's a, a, an assumption made that people hold office as long as they want to, um, that once you're in, it's kind of your spot to lose. Um, and so the only way to fix that is to, to provide a measure that uh, escorts them out of the buildings um, so that they can't hold power forever. Okay, so if I say to you, uh, Professor Berger, Congress is broken. It's ineffectual. Term limits is the only way to drain the swamp. How do you respond to that? That I'll grant you the first part, <laughs> that Congress is broken. It's not uh, living up to the, the role that we expect it to play in our system of government. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. And to reduce any of those problems to one single solution is unhelpful. There, there's We should be honest about what's wrong with our politics in each, uh, and be honest about why we got this way. Some of it's been, uh, or in fact, most of it's been purposeful. Um, because of politicians, because of leaders, and a lot of it because of voters or non-voters, um, we should have an honest conversation about what's wrong with politics. And so to portray term limits as a silver bullet um, is not at all helpful. And in fact, will make a lot of things that uh, about our politics that we already hate even worse. So what's your response to those that offer the term limits would create a, citizens le a citizen legislature from all walks of life who would be better equipped to address the problems currently facing the country. Yeah, it, it makes sense. Um, and, and I'll grant you that. Uh, but what I, I always point out is that one, we've never really been a citizen legislature. I mean, even going back to the founding when it was sought, uh, seen as like a, a civic duty rather than a career in and of itself. Um, these were the, the richest, the whitest, the, the, the most elite people our country had. And so to pretend that there was this golden age of a citizen-led legislature of just fully civic-minded people is neither true nor helpful. Um, and so term limits would just exacerbate a lot of the problems that we already have within our politics. It, it will transfer power um, away from the most representative body, the Congress, uh, to the executive branch, and and it will empower staffers um, that don't have the that do have the experience level that we just kicked out the door because they they were uh, 
uh, term limited in their roles. So um, it will do nothing to solve uh, a lot of the problems that we think it will. Now, now many cite, um, I would add with some justification, the, the members of Congress spend more time raising money than they do the people's business. Mm -hmm. And they offer term limits that takes away that incentive. Your thoughts, sir? It would only, if it does, it would only take away that incentive during the very last term of their term limit. So let's say that there's a six-year term limit on House members, three terms of two years. The first five years, they're not going to, that doesn't do anything to change their incentive structure. And what that does ignore is that these people will just assume that these people will go back to their their previous lives. Um, th that's not true. We've studied the type of person that runs for politics. These are typically ambitious folks that want a, a public service bent. Um, and so they studies have shown that they look for their next role as they're working on their current role. So if you term limit them, you're just going to exacerbate that process of them not going back to their lawyerships or their doctorships or public teachers or accountants, whatever they were before Congress. Um, but they're actually going to try to stay in the game, knowing that they just spent a lot of time and money gaining these skills. And now it's time to cash in. So that will not only exacerbate the lobbyist problem that we have, because a lot of former members turn to lobbying. Um, it will actually reduce the capacity of the chamber. It will take away the experience that we need within the chamber to write good representative policy. Well, you, you just mentioned a key word that um, seems to be antithetical to, to this conversation and that uh, from my vantage point, um, the, the conversation about term limits seems to assume that experience with an elected official is a pejorative when, it, yeah. when every other walk of life it is an asset. Hundred percent. There's not one job that you would you would mention, especially something as complex as lawmaking. That there's not one job where experience is demonized. Uh, politics is kind of the exception. I want my pilots to have experience. I want my doctors to have experience. I want my uh, lawyers to have experience. Anyone in the walk of life, you learn the job as you do the job. We shouldn't think about politics any differently. And we need to have an honest conversation amongst ourselves that representation and policy making are incredibly uncertain topics, right? It, they're impossible. There's no guidebook of like, here's the one, two, three to good policy. Experience matters. And to, to recognize pitfalls, to, to be able to anticipate the unintended consequences, and there's always unintended consequences in, in policy making. Seeing that that experience level as a, as a virtue rather than a vice is a, as a good first step. Well, you mentioned unintended consequences and, and, uh, Term limits seems to have wide bipartisan support among the American people. I think I saw uh, one poll I saw as high as 81 percent. Mm -hmm. um, short of sounding elitist, what in your view are the unintended consequences you just referenced that may not be factored in, in support for term limits? So policymaking is incredibly difficult. I mean, there's not many bills that are in, in isolation on an issue area. So if you touch one thing, let's say healthcare, write a bill about healthcare, you're going to touch uh, almost everything else within that's related or tangentially related to healthcare. The economy, taxes, commerce, interstate federalism rights, There's the, the, the list is endless. And so to be able to, to see the bigger scope, to see the, the, the holistic view of, of government, representation, policymaking, actually just takes experience. So if you you term limit them to be able to, to gain that experience and capitalize on that, those hard earned lessons, you're, you're going to hamstring yourself um, to, to write good policy. 
Adding to that, you're going to transfer power away from Congress, the most directly elected uh, branch of government, to people that are not term limited, whether that's officials in the executive branch, not just the president and his cabinet uh, secretaries, but actually the bureaucrats that are not term limited, that stay there, um, developing that expertise. And then more drain the swamp messaging, you're going to transfer power to lobbyists. Lobbyists are not term limited. Their whole game is um, not only providing access to their clients, but actually expertise on certain issue areas. So if you remove the incentive to develop expertise to, to politicians who know they're gonna be looking for work in two, four, six years, you, you remove that incentive structure to develop those, those modicums of expertise, and then you rely on people that do know it. And so if you can't have that internal capacity um, with your own selves within Congress, you're gonna start looking elsewhere. And uh, for, for a government that is, is built on the fact that we elect representatives to represent our issue areas, the more that you force people to look outside the chamber for, for answers, and answers in DC always come with a partisan agenda, the more you do that, the, the less power you're actually giving to your voters to, to have representation within the chambers. Well, well, to that extent, is some of this related to the fact that we see Congress people on television, often we do not see, and we shouldn't see uh, congressional staffs on television, nor should, nor do we see special interests on television. So is some of this driven by what we actually see as opposed to what some of the mechanics of governing that you just outlined? Yeah, and, and no doubt, but then we should talk about how those incentive structures lie. Um, I don't blame people for using the, the avenues of, of uh, the media today to influence their own brand. I want my representative to do it if he's using, if he or she is using it in a way to, to garner influence, uh, to, to then cash in chits to make po uh, policies that reflect uh, our, our districts and our state in a, in a beneficial way. But the, the reality of, of having a Congress that is uh, ineffective and, and incredibly polarized with a, a social media and a media environment that rewards extremism, um, it, the, the term limit argument would only make that worse in that the faster you speed up the cycle of replacement of politicians, so if people are term limited, term limited to three terms, you're going to have more off turnover more often, which people see as a good thing, but it will actually exacerbate a lot of the polarization that we see now. Because there are so few competitive districts and states as a result of polarization, um, by speeding up that election cycle, you're effectively uh, speeding up how quickly polarization happens. People win in their primary elections. The only way you win in a primary election is to go more extreme, uh, more base than the, the person that is uh, more moderate. And doing that will just send more and more people that are at the, the tails of extremes in their parties to represent those interests in D.C. So you can see how this is a, as simple as it sounds of just kicking out uh, career politicians. It actually will have a, a huge amount of consequences, even just how our politics works uh, within Congress. Hmm. And to that end, uh, term limits doesn't mitigate what I'm hearing you say, some of the institutional structures that incentivize you know, parties to work, you know, majority party work against the minority party that incentivizes the, the current Senate structure where it's really minority rule unless you have more than 60 votes on your side. So the term limits does nothing to, to change those incentives. Would that be correct? It will make them worse. 
So you're right. In the Senate, at least, you need 60 votes to get most uh, controversial things done, or at least something that doesn't have broad bipartisan support. And those issues are few and far between. Um, because you will you will incentivize people to to maintain their popularity with the voters that keep them or send them to office. And that happens within primary elections. And those we know who turns out in primary elections are the most dedicated. Those that are most dedicated are often the most extreme of their parties, the least likely to see compromising positions. And so as a result, you're going to get politicians who see compromise as the quickest way to lose their seat rather than a way to develop a, a uh, a resume of legislative accomplishments to take back to their voters and say, look how much I did for us. Um, you can see how that incentive structure becomes one of opposition because my voters sent me here as member of the minority party to stop the other side. It's not enough to get things done. Um, I get punished for, for seeing it, being seen as someone that helped them get their job done. It's just diametrically opposed uh, incentives right now. Hmm. I'm talking with uh, Professor Casey Burgard of George Washington University. Uh, Professor Burgard, it's, it's, it's really interesting because we look at, say, presidential polling, and uh, let's say President Biden has a 38% approval rating. I'm just making this up. And let's say that that is juxtaposed with Congress having a 20% approval rating. But what that what, what those types of numbers don't show is that that particular congressman in his or her district has maybe a 50, 55% approval. So these polls about the low polling of Congress is also insulated by the individual's district or their state. So is isn't so really the, the the gripe against Congress really isn't revealing just looking at poll numbers. 100%, you, you nailed the one of the paradoxes of, of Congress is that Congress as an institution is incredibly unpopular and it's never been really popular, but now it, we're at the, the dearth of popularity now. Um, but our individual members of Congress remain popular. There's a high reelection rates um, that people, if they, they uh, maintain their positions and maintain their standing within their communities. It's their job to lose, which is why term limit advocates, they, they point to those high re-election rates as a need to shake up the system. And I kind of get that. But individually, uh, doesn't match the, the unpopularity of the institution as a whole. Um, it, it's one of the paradoxes of politics and of Congress. And it just goes to show you that in Congress, as it was designed to be, it is not a national body. That a national sample of poll of poll respondents isn't a good measure of what people think about their individual members of Congress. And so, we should be focused on our district representatives and our state representatives within the Senate. And then, kind of the whole national mood is it should be left to the the presidency, who's kind of our only uh, national representative, the only one with a national electorate. How do you respond to those that offer that it was never the intention of the framers of the Constitution to have career politicians? How do you respond to that argument? Almost all of them were career politicians in, in some way, or at least a great many of them. So, yeah, I don't it probably wasn't their intentions, but they also recognize that they they couldn't see the future. I mean, they wrote a, a Constitution when there weren't street lamps to say nothing of the Internet. And so we should think about. Uh, Congress in the modern day and age of like, why wouldn't we want our best and our brightest to, to get there? 
And if we rest on the assumption that voters do have a choice, and we do each and every two years for the House side and six years for the Senate side uh, to choose our politicians, that we shouldn't have to have these draconian measures that take away that power because we're not good about good enough about judging who we should have in there in the first place. Um, to to have to be um, forthright about what we expect of our members of Congress, what's realistic to get things done, how our members of Congress are behaving um, uh, within their jobs and and as leaders in a, in a political environment, but more importantly of just like Congress or member service, civic duty, civic uh, service within Congress is not desirable. So we should try to get the best and, and brightest that we can. And then if they're doing a good job, send them back. And if they're not, let's try something new. And that's what elections are for. We shouldn't need this uh, uh, cutoff of, of service at some arbitrary deadline saying, hey, you've had your time now, let's go get someone new. And, and if we follow that logic, it, it would seem to me that while attacking term limits, there would, there, there would be also an effort to, um, uh, to address the influence of political parties, because clearly um, I'm thinking about James Madison, Federalist 10, Federalist 51 and elsewhere, he seemed more concerned with curbing the negative impact of factions than he did about career politicians. Your thoughts? 100%. And I teach those Federalist Papers in one of my first classes of every single semester. And the, and the point of those factions is like, air is to fire what factions is to liberty, is what he said. And so he's talking about how we know that people are going to try to find friends. And in politics, especially in a democracy where the most votes wins, you need friends to do anything. And so it's we should not be... Uh, Factions are dangerous. Yes, they are. They can be, especially if their goals are not to to provide public services or good public policy. But we're not going to get rid of them. And in a in a democracy where the most votes wins, it's it's only logical. And we should want our members of Congress or any politicians to go find friends to get the most votes. That's how it's supposed to work. The alternative is even worse. Um, so we should be able to provide an, an opportunity where factions can be developed and then most importantly to design a system which the founders did incredibly good at to create a space where those factions can come and have legitimate disagreements where you put your both your best policy forward uh you date debate it you amend it you take perspectives inside and outside of of the bubble and then whomever's votes get the most those win but right now what we have is is factions for faction's sake or party loyalty to then explain where you stand on an issue. It should be flipped. I should be able to go find factions based on where I stand. And, and a lot of times our party uh, ideologies will align, but if they don't, we should have a, 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 an opportunity to, to, or an incentive structure to, to go find friends across the aisle to, to try to get things done. And the reality is um, our current political environment does not incentivize that enough. And in fact, it punishes that type of work, that cr cross-party lines, uh, cross-party coalitions, legislating that the, the Congress was built was built upon. Well, under, underneath that, what I'm what I'm hearing you say is, um, is sticking on the theme of factions for just a moment. Have we made, in your view, the factions, parties, special interests, sort of a cabal, all of the above, more important? than those fundamental democratic republican norms that the country was committed to so are the parties more important than the democratic norms i i, I guess i'm not comfortable saying they're more important but if i um research is showing over and over that whatever party you are aligned you're going to see your world through that party lens that it takes a lot to be able to to buck your party's stance on that issue and in fact 
uh, the party that you adhere to is most is going to tell you what you stand for. Um, when you think like, no, I, depending on how I stand on an issue, that will tell me what party most agrees with me. Right now, that's kind of flipped um, in that partisanship is, is motivating us rather than uh, us being motivated to go find uh, parties that agree with us. So uh, this is kind of the point though, is that notice we're not talking about term limits, which is proposed as a, a silver bullet to all of these problems, but we have a lot of problems, um, each with their own causes and consequences and individual solutions. So if you're mad at lobbyists, let's write laws about lobbying. If you're mad at money in politics, let's write laws or probably now an amendment uh, attacking money in politics. Uh, to, to pretend that the the brush, the, the uh, all of the problems with our politics, and there are a great many, will all be solved if we can just limit to the number of years politicians can serve is, is just going to make a lot of things worse and, and, and frustrate people in the meantime. Mm. You know, you, you raised that. I was just thinking as I was um, te teaching my class last night, I, we were talking about um, this very issue, in fact. And one of the points that I made, someone asked me for an example, and one of the points that I made to them was in 2016, um, when then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said uh, that eight months was, was, was not enough time to have a Supreme Court hearing because President Obama was about to be termed out. Mm -hmm. uh, but eight weeks was more than enough time uh, right before the 2020 election. And my point to them was, no one on McConnell's side of the aisle was opposed to that. Very few were opposed to that. But every, everyone on McConnell's side of the aisle would be opposed if the situation were reversed. So it, ultimately, I'm wondering that kind of allegiance that you're talking about, does it sort of methodically erode our democratic norms in your view? 100%. Uh, we have a huge problem with, I mean, so much of how Congress and, and politics in general is supposed to operate isn't written down. It's this iterative process that has developed over time. Congress is a path dependent in institution, meaning whatever came before is probably the best uh, guess about how things are supposed to work in the future. But the thing about norms, these traditions, these customs and the Senate is a, a body built on those things um, where very few rules are, are actually in place. I mean, when they break down, when you break them, they're really, really hard to get back. It's like trust in a relationship. It's 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 assumed to work. And then the minute it stops working, it's really hard to envision a time when we can go back and, and just reset, press the reset button. It doesn't work like that, um, especially in a body, in an in a industry where power is constantly up for grabs in every two, four, six years. So these are self-reinforcing problems that have real impact on not only how the place works, if it does at all, but even how our members and ourselves back to each other, treat each other, think of each other, um, where you, you can be, you can disagree without being disagreeable. That's, that's kind of gone, right? Where it's, everything's inflamed and everything's so toxic right now that we see the other side as dangerous, less than uh, enemies, unpatriotic. We even see our leaders using this type of language, which is a huge sign of democratic backsliding and, and what, really smart people that study failing democracies around the world are kind of warning us about where the U.S. is headed, that we shouldn't pretend that all of this will always work or that we'll always snap back just because we're America. Um, democracy is one of those things where if you don't work for it, it'll disappear. You, 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 you touched on this earlier, but I'd like to have you spend more time, if you would, talk about the importance of institutional memory in Congress. And if term limits were enacted, where would that institutional memory go if you have someone termed out after six years or 12 years? 
yeah, I'll start at the, the last part. Where would institutional memory go? It'll leave and it will go to well, one. And what people think about term limits is probably solving is it will go to special interest groups. Um, like I said, that when you term limit people out, they're not just going to forfeit the experience that they just spent a lot of years, money and, and heartache earning relationships, uh, special expertise on a certain issue area, the policymaking process, the archaic language of congressional procedures, all of that stuff will go to somewhere else that will pay them for that experience. And we shouldn't fault people or pretend that that, that incentive doesn't exist. And so um, it will go to special interest groups, it might go to the executive branch, or, or worse, it will leave politics entirely, where it just kind of uh, is people that are so frustrated with politics will just kind of sit out. And that's just a, that's a, a bad return on the investment that we, we paid for with our public servants. So I, I for one, think it's a, a, a worthwhile investment to make people that are have the best interests of, of the institution and their constituents at heart to keep them in the chamber, because like I said, we're paying their salary now. They're getting good at it. They're gaining that experience that we should think as, as valuable because I don't, I mean, if I weren't in policymaking now, I would have no idea how it works. Just the same way I know that if I go get a, a, a heart surgery, I'm not going to be the one that says, you know what, give me the fresh eyes out there. I want someone who has a different perspective on heart valves. I think that's a bad return on my investment of health. And we should think about civic service and, and policymaking in much the same way. And, and that institutional memory goes hand in hand with the previous uh, uh, question I had for you of just about the, the notion of experience. You, you can't have institutional memory void of experience. So it's, it's yeah. almost counter. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's, it's counterintuitive. And the, it might even be more so with with policymaking and, and the legislative process, because um, there's no school for this. Right. Like I keep mentioning doctors as someone we want and value experience for this. And but during medical school, they have literal requirements that they're doing these things under the guise of a professional, making sure that they're doing it right. They have hands on training. There's no real hands on training for for politics. Um, there's state ledger legislatures and city councils and things like that where you are within the industry. But it ain't the same thing. And so the, the real on the training job is the minute you get the job in it of itself. And if you you term limit that, not only are you eventually going to forfeit that experience, but you're actually decreasing the incentive to learn the place from the inside out. If I know that my career has to change in, in six years, why would I want to spend five of them becoming the best at it? It, it just doesn't make sense uh, from a human, um, uh, human interest perspective. You know, when you were saying that, I was, I was thinking about uh, uh, Robert Carroll's last book on Lyndon Johnson. And he talked about how Johnson used this arcane house rule to get to overcome the filibuster that Southern Democrats were uh, using. Oh, I mean, I guess the Senate rule, but yeah. uh, but to 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 get Southern Democrats to, to override their their, their filibuster of the, of the 64 Civil Rights Act. So that's a good example to your point about where Johnson's experience, you know, moved the country forward. It did. A hundred percent. And if you're just thinking about it from a self-interested voter, um, if my member of Congress doesn't have the experience, he's he or she's going to lose to someone, oftentimes to someone that does. And so um, we should for our own voters and for a Congress as an as an institution, we should want the, the people that um, uh, recognize that experience, that want to invest in that type of expertise because it will benefit us all. 
always knowing, always knowing that they have to face re-election at some point. Voters have the ultimate power. And though those elections are skewed oftentimes, they're not skewed because of the amount of time that, that members serve in office. They're skewed for a lot of different reasons that term limits would not address and in fact would probably make worse. You know, we, we talked earlier about uh, institutional memory, but one of the um, sort of stagnant uh, concepts uh, is power. Power is there. So if you if you limit the term of lawmakers, that power dynamic, because um, that, that's one of the arguments I've heard against, I mean, for term limits, is that you limit the power of lawmakers. But that assumes that once that power dynamic is gone, it is gone forever. But that power dynamic, just like institutional memory, will go elsewhere. Exactly. I, it's it's not a zero sum change, but power is not just going to disappear and everyone's equal. Um, you'll even see uh, the the dynamic that we have now where a lot of power is centralized in party leaders that have been there a long time, the Nancy Pelosi's and the Mitch McConnell's and, and things like that, the Lyndon Johnson's before them. Um, but that will just be uh, sped up, right, where your freshman term lawmakers are going to rely on people that have been there, the two term serving, the three term serving, especially there's going to be a speaker of the house that speaker is going to have outsized influence because of their constitutional and, and internal prerogatives. And so, yeah, the power won't shift and just be uh, dis- dispersed equally. You'll just speed up that process uh, just because when you don't know something, you do what every person does. You Google it. And in Congress, when that doesn't work, you go find someone who you trust that does. And so that deference to someone else who wasn't elected by your constituents uh, is going to have that outsized influence. And that's even if it's in inside the chamber. If it's not, and more likely when you have term limits for everybody, um, you're going to look outside the chambers for that influence, the executive branch, the lobbyists, and that will just make a lot of the problems that we think term limits will solve even worse. You know, J- Justice uh, Louis Brandeis was famous for saying that um, that the states uh, were the laboratories for democracy. So if we follow that thinking mm-hmm. and we look at some of the states that have enacted term limits, um, what's been their record from your perspective? What's the what? I'm sorry. Their record and the, the states that have enacted term limits. What's what's been their record? Uh, yeah. So, it... Yep. So a lot uh, a few political scientists have looked at this question because we don't have the answer to what would happen in Congress at the federal level if term limits existed because they never have. And so we look at the closest thing to them and, and how has that um, changed the, the dynamic within state legislatures. And what they've noticed is that a lot of the, the assumed benefits of, of term limits haven't actually been realized. It doesn't change the type of person that ends up running for office, though it does get a little more representative in some instances, but there are reasons why that's true that are outside term limits. Um, It finds that people after they're term limited go seek other elected office and that they start looking for those jobs a little bit sooner. Um, It transfers power from the legislature to the executive in each of those states um, by lessening the dependence on voters to keep them in office. Uh, Members of Congress or sorry, members of state legislatures take actions that are, are not necessarily with their constituents' best interests in mind. And so uh, budgets get bigger. Um, they spend less time actually meeting with constituents and providing constituent services, things like that. So um, there's actually uh, things get worse a little bit and, and things and in, in, in aspects that we don't assume to be at all related to term limits uh, pop up while not actually realizing many of the benefits that we assume to take place. In, in those in, in those studies, uh, do 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 um, 
states become more polarized. I mean, I mean uh, I'm, I'm, I'm originally from California and, and uh, we enacted some very draconian term limits really to get rid of one elected official in my view, which was Willie Brown. He was uh, the powerful speaker of the assembly. But, but, but California has become uber partisan mm-hmm. in, that, in that a cup of water with a D on its name yeah, can get will get elected, you know, before any viable Republican. So, in your experience, are, are states more polarized that have enacted term limits in this? I guess in the studies, have they shown that? Uh, they, I don't think they have shown that, but I think we're facing a chicken and the egg problem here. Is are, do these things exacerbate term or polar? Do term limits exacerbate exacerbate polarization with this in the states? That's not independent of the actual trends that were leading us to more polarization in the first place. So to disentangle those two things are incredibly difficult. And I haven't seen a study that's been able to do that effectively. One of the reasons we wanted to have you on um, was right on the heels of an article that was run by the uh, San Francisco Chronicle that talked about um, Senator Dianne Feinstein's declining mental health. And she can't remember people. And and even member members of, of of the Senate and, and how she can't remember, and uh, we've also had some notably some other uh, senators that stayed a long time: Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, Robert Byrd of West Virginia, in the House, John Dingell, who I think is still in Congress, the longest serving member, and this is. Um, this has revived, I guess, the uh, the, the term limit argument. Um, uh, if there were term limits, we could avoid having members serving too long. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so to me, there are different problems. Um, to have someone staying past their internal capacities can be solved uh, in ways that don't limit everyone else. And you mentioned an instance in California that term limits were basically instituted to get at one politician, effectively uh, affecting the, the career trajectories of everybody else. And to me, to write a law for one, two, three people in mind is is kind of missing the point, especially if they come with negative consequences down the line. So if you have a problem um, with the um, length of terms or the length of service out to, to get past their mental capacities, perhaps a, a age restriction um, on on their 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 age on uh, when they're able to run for office or or things like that are is the most uh, effective ways of, of approaching that problem without affecting literally everyone else in the meantime. Um, but the reality is is that the Senate is unrepresentative in so many ways and age is one of them where it's vastly um, older than the, the the country at large or the, at least the electorate. So that should be discussed and we should talk about many reasons why why that's true. Um, and, and term limits won't solve almost any of them. Um, so we should be specific about the problems we're trying to solve and then be specific about the solutions that will, will minimize the negative unattended consequences. Yeah, I'd also be remiss though, if we don't, if we don't acknowledge that they are, there are entrenched advantages to incumbency to sort of fuel the term limit debate. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are, and but there's actually a, a, one. The incumbency advantage advantage is, is less than at any time in the modern era, and there's more avenues for people through social media and and elsewhere to to get their name out there to to dilute the uh, a lot of the institutional advantages that um, incumbents face. But the reality is is that we don't have enough par- people participating. 
I mean, the 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 vast majority of voters or non-voters actually don't can't say that who their member of Congress is. And when name recognition is the number one virtue, so just by seeing their name, you're more likely to, to click it if you know it. Um, we need to have, I mean, too, too few people are, are invested in a system um, that would that can shake these things up. But at the same time, we see a lot of shocks each and every congressional cycle of like people that we think are untouchable go down. Um, and that just shows we learn the lesson over and over that if you have a smart, disciplined ground game, if you really reach voters where they are, if you don't uh, you, you create a, a campaign that is focused on 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 responding to the needs and, and wants of your constituents, you can you can shock the world. So um, we, we need to take advantage of those opportunities. You, you mentioned earlier, you described um, term limits uh, as being a proposal that was a silver bullet. When I think of many of the issues that fuel term limits, uh, I, I think of uh, the current structure of money in politics, gerrymandered districts, senators and representatives that feel out of, con- out of touch with constituents. Mm-hmm. These all feel um, intractable to me. And term limits, therefore, feels like a proximate response to an insoluble problem. And I wonder, how, is that how you see this whole conversation? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I it's funny you mentioned this, and I don't know how public this should be, but I'm literally writing a book proposal right now about a lot of the assumed problems with politics, um, and and how we're talking about them wrong, and how we're falling consistently for these silver bullet uh, solutions that a won't work, b treat all these problems in isolation, and in, in politics nothing is ever in isolation, and c will likely make a lot of these things work. Um, it's not helpful in the, the the optimism that a, a solution like this it's it, it the optimism that it provides is actually unhelpful it will kick the can down the road because term limits will not be um, put in place so the longer that we ask for them the more dependent we grow on them the less we're spending time on on things that we can actually affect um, and it's just a self-reinforcing doom loop over and over and it's 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 frustrating well, as for whether or not it should be public, I trust in the introduction that you will mention that I first I first raised this issue on the public morality in, in a public forum. So <laughs> I would be happy to believe if I, can get this stuff, if I can get this on paper, I can start sleeping at night and a lot of good things will result from that. All right, we're going to hold you to that. We'll have you back on for when, when the book's released. Uh, well, how do you respond to those who, who say, well, you know, the, the president has term limits. You know, why should Congress be allowed to serve for life? Yeah, there's no single issue, no single person in Congress uh, that has the power of an individual presidency. I mean, he's a commander in chief. He has the nuclear code. So it makes sense because he has this outsized individual unilateral power. No member of Congress can come close to matching that. Um, And so that's even an actual argument for saying to, to in this system of checks and balances, we shouldn't weaken the, the Congress uh, against a president who has shown over and over and over um, that any power that's deferred to him and uh, he'll take and he'll even try to take power that's not deferred to him, uh, knowing that Congress won't have the, the gall to, to, to take it back. And so just because of the powers, the, the institutional powers, the, the political powers and even the societal powers that we give to a president, um, unilaterally, um, the power of his pen is is infinitely more power than any pen uh, resting in the hand of any individual member of Congress. So it makes sense to limit someone uh, who can uh, that holds that amount of unilateral power. 
you know, just going back real quickly to uh, the the unfortunate um, uh, findings of Senator Feinstein. Uh, mm-hmm. Some some have argued that her staff is doing the work. I guess in, in a sort of paradoxical way, that sort of makes your point about being opposed to term limits is that staff becomes emboldened. Hundred um, percent. I literally wrote a dissertation, and no one should ever read it. But uh, I wrote a dissertation about the influence and and role of congressional staffers. Knowing how busy members of Congress are, so ignoring the fact that some of them uh, may be incapacitated or at least not up to the the day-to-day challenges of their job, they're doing so much and expected to do so much at once, they have to defer and rely on congressional staffers who are not elected. And so anytime that you defer your name to someone to decide on your behalf, you're, you're giving them the power of the office. And so without them being accountable to, to voters. And so you do that if, if the less your members involved on policymaking issues, the more they rely on the advice of their staff and in staff are incredibly valuable resources. The more they rely on them, the more the accountability is less with the member and more with the staffer who, who doesn't face the voters. So it, the same thing can be true for lobbyists, the, the executive branch officials and even congressional staff where people are starting to make decisions who never have to face voters to, to, as a plus or a thumbs up or thumbs down on their behaviors. Uh, the preamble of the Constitution begins, we the people, um, which is an implied assumption that uh, sovereignty rests with the people. Mm-hmm. Doesn't acting term limits further chip away at that fundamental belief in the American experiment? 100%. If we should start, um, if we start with the premise that voters should have the choice to choose their elected officials, including throwing them out if enough of them don't think they're doing a good job, then we can't all of a sudden throw in this arbitrary deadline of except for when they've served X number of years, right? I mean, if you get to the point where it's 30, 40 years, then yes, we can have a conversation. But that's just such a a few number that it's not worth uh, throwing on the, the huge draconian measure to institute it for all of them. But if we're somehow limited in who we can choose for our elected officials outside of the few constitutional requirements that are in there, you know, a certain age, which in fact, we can even talk about how that uh, ignores the reality that uh, a lot of young people are more affected by policies than anyone else. Um, Once we start throwing on these qualifications, we're gonna end up at a point where voters lose power to choose their representatives. And that's kind of the whole point in the first place. If we don't have that, then uh, one of the founding principles of of what we're after is is shook. So so, so is is this conversation the result of decades of increasing exasperation uh, by the the voter that uh, we've become more cynical We've become more distrusting. And so uh, in many ways, we feel powerless to really address the problems that that have led some to conclude that we need to limit the terms of members of Congress. Yes. Yes. A lot of this stems from a decades long message of like, these guys aren't doing the job. So let's get someone else. Uh, And not only are they not doing the job, uh, they've made a, a position where it's their job to hold until they don't want it anymore. And so, A, we're not impacting policy, and B, we can't even, in the end, uh, we're facing a rigged system where they're going to keep being reelected no matter what I want them to, whether I want them to be or not. And so after, and by the way, we should mention the role of politicians of exacerbating this message, right? One of the best messages 
um, uh, to gain a, a position in Congress is to run against Congress, to tell you everything that's wrong with it, that we shouldn't trust those members, that they don't have your best interests at heart. I mean, that's literally how you win elections. And so I can't blame voters for hearing that message over and over, starting to believe it, because it's very hard to see a tangible impact when you're one of 750,000 in the House or a couple million choosing who, who the senator is. It's not likely that you have an opportunity to feel individually heard. So I get all that. Um, but that's not the point. I mean, the, the system is built around that we are one of many, that all of our votes count the same. Um, and we can talk about whether they do or not, but it's not because of term limits. Um, the money in politics, the gerrymandering, the media, uh, individual members of Congress. Um, we all got to be honest about our role in this system and perpetuating what's wrong with Congress and not relying on these silver bullet answers that just simply aren't answers. Well, in lieu of term limits, um, and should we remain with the status quo, which most, um, and I'm including you and I would say, um, is less than ideal, mm-hmm. what are the other long, arduous possibilities that you would put forth? Yeah, this is when I say, okay, what problem are we trying to solve? Um, everything. So let's just go down the system, starting institutional. I think there's a conversation to talk about the filibuster. I think there's a conversation to talk about voting rights access, um, changing up the primary system, introducing potentially the idea of uh, multi-member districts um, to get away from the two-party dynamic that we just think is ingrained in all democracies. It's not. Um, talking about the length of, of uh, ser- uh, terms for members of Congress, there's not one developing democracy that has chosen a two-year term limit, or sorry, a two-year cycle for their for their lower house. Um, money in politics, we can talk about limiting that type of way, and it's likely to go through the Supreme Court now, which, given its partisan composition, is unlikely to change that. Um, talking about the role of misinformation and disinformation, then talking about how we as 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 citizens are exacerbating a lot of these things. What type of conversations are we having? Are we sorting ourselves through our media choices and our literal living choices with only people that agree with us? And how is that clouding our judgment about what is right and what is wrong and our ability to hear differing perspectives? Um, With members of Congress, um, them not putting things on the floor to have an open and honest debate about where people stand. Right now, the best way to keep a a unified message is to keep votes off the floor that will show defection within the party. That ain't good for representation. Uh, We don't get to hear where people stand. We don't get to have that faction versus faction debate, which the House and Senate floor were designed to be. I mean, there's an endless list of all of these things, each with their own solutions, but it all starts on the fundamental principle within politics that nothing is in isolation and nothing comes without trade-offs. And so just to pretend that if we just do this one thing, if we just get rid of gerrymandering, gerrymandering with uh, nonpartisan commissions, if we just get rid of money in politics, then all of our political ills will be solved. They won't because of all of this intractability, right? This, all of these things are interrelated to say nothing of the fact that the system doesn't stop, right? There's no pause button. The next election is always coming. And so it's going to get really, it's going to be really difficult to, to triage the problems that we need to in a way that will, um, ultimately give us a better chance to be representative. Finally, and um, this this may be revealing some of my own cynicism and, and based on my experience in California, that California also has an initiative process. And that process has become a cottage industry, if you will. 
I'm I'm wondering, are we seeing a similar trend with the term limit debate that that beyond maybe having a constitutional amendment, which I doubt we would ever have, it doesn't seem likely right now, is just the notion of of raising term limits itself become the self-perpetuating cottage industry that it just keeps us going, which actually works to keep the dysfunctional status quo operable. Yeah. Yeah, probably. I mean, we haven't seen it at the national level yet, but uh, I, I am confident given the, the money that is available in politics, it's an industry of it itself uh, where you can make a good living being on the consultant side that when they see an opportunity to convince people that this is the right route, then people are going to start paying for their services the same way lobbyists exist and, and campaign professionals too. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that kind of makes its way to the more national stage, though uh, the, the petition side, the avenue for petition success is, is probably a lot different than a, in a lot of states across the country. Professor Casey Burgert, George Washington University. Sir, I want to thank you uh, for joining me today on the Public Rally. Much appreciate your insight, sir. A hundred percent. And let me just say one final thing about term limits. If it's important to you, it's if it's important to your citizens uh, and, and voters and even me- and voter and members of Congress running for these jobs, they can term limit themselves. Right. If that is important to their constituents, if they want to prove that that this is something that they're in for, they can say, I won't run for reelection after X number of years. That's a good campaign message if people want to hear it. But you'll notice that the people that are the loudest advocates for these things, the ones in power, um, they're likely uh, past their term limits for the ones that they want to enact on someone else. So let that be a, an indication of, okay, what, what are they gaining from, from advocating from this if they're not willing to adhere to it themselves? It's a good question to, to start from, but thanks for having me. I, I love talking about this stuff. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Pullman Corrality at their studios. The Pullman Corrality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Pullman Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>